0: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be reading today verses 22 through 28, kind of pick up where we left off last week. I want you to think for just a moment, okay? I know for some of us in this room, this is a little challenging to do, but think about technologies over your lifetime that were once cutting edge that are now obsolete. One of those, um, we got a list of them up here, the alarm clock. I mean, kind of um, ran its course between 725 and 2008. Didn't know the first one was invented in 725. Don't even know what that looked like, but the alarm clock is no longer, um, the old school one is no longer a thing. Book form encyclopedias, some of y'all still have those around your house. Um, film, how many of you still use film? Nobody, right? Um fax machines, okay? That's pretty outdated there. What else we got up here? Phone booths. Man, it's been a while since I've been in a phone booth. Try to avoid those phone books. Man, you talk about killing some trees. We used to kill some trees with those. Um paper maps. Um now we got GPS systems in our car and on our phones. The watch calculator. Now, be honest, how many of you had a watch calculator? I know Mike up there does, did because he already admitted that. Chris down here, I always wanted those, but those were always too expensive um, for us. VHS tapes, man, um, please rewind, right? And then the non-smartphones or as we like to refer to them, as the dumb phones, right? Those are all things that were once technological, um, cutting-edge things that are now obsolete. What has made these things obsolete? New technologies, right? As we have looked at over the past several weeks, while um, with the coming of Jesus, he made the old covenant obsolete, didn't he? So read with me this morning within our focal passage, Hebrews 9, 22 through 28. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the, high, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, waiting for him. I've titled this message, There is Victory in Jesus. When Jesus Christ burst into human history, <clears throat> he was victorious over sin and death wasn't he and he provided a way for every single one of us in this room to be victorious as well our message point is Jesus is a better sacrifice and that leads us into our first point Jesus's sacrifice gives us access into heaven within these verses that we just read we see three different um, accesses that Jesus has made within human history. We see him appear before God the Father again. We 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 know that Jesus came and dwelt among us and we know that Jesus is going to come again. Notice our first subpoint this morning. It is this. Old covenant purification. In verses 22 and 23, we read, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things To be purified with these rites. We looked at verse 22 last week, but by way of review, the only way a person can be forgiven of their sins is with the shedding of blood, right? You remember how we looked at in the Old Testament? Sin cost and payment for your sins and my sins was the death of Jesus. In Romans 5 8, we read, God demonstrated his love to us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. At the moment of Jesus' death, the old covenant became obsolete because a better covenant was put in its place, and Jesus called that covenant what? The new covenant, right? In verse 23, we read um, the the statement, copies of the heavenly. This refers to the Old Testament tabernacle, refers to the furnishings within it before the old covenant could be instituted, before it could officially begin, what did Moses had to do, have to do? Moses had to sprinkle everything with blood, didn't he? He sprinkled the book of the law. He sprinkled the furnishings within the tabernacle, and he sprinkled the people with blood as well. Why did he do that? Because everything that was inside the tabernacle was made with human hands. And anything that human hands touched was defiled. And so the blood provided purification um, for all of those furnishings and all of the people and even the book of the law. And we see next here that there is a new covenant satisfaction. But the heavenly things themselves With better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. After Jesus' work was complete on earth, he ascended to take his rightful place next to the Father in heaven. When, you, we, when we think about the passing um, through the holy place, and we've looked at this, Jesus didn't stop in the holy place. He didn't stop in the holy of holies. He went directly to God the Father, and the, the shedding of his blood and the perfect life that he lived gave him that access. We are told here that he appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like when you and I have the opportunity to dwell in the very presence of the Lord. It is going to be a glorious day. It is going to be a glorious sight to behold. Notice next, Jesus' sacrifice was only needed once. You remember the work of the the priest and the high priest. It was a never-ending work, wasn't it? For the high priest, their work was endless. Um, In verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with the blood of his own. The high priest, year after year on the day of atonement, went into the holy of holies twice. The first time he went in with the blood of an animal sacrifice, and that blood provided purification for his sins and for the sin of his household. And then the second time he went into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat, and that that provided the purification that the people needed. This was repeated year after year after year after year, and there was never any high priest that was able to come out of the Holy of Holies out of the holy place, into the outer court, or outside the tabernacle that was able ever able to say, the work is complete. Your sins are atoned for once and for all. They couldn't do that because they knew that a person's sin could not be forgiven once and for all, um, the way that things were, were put into place in the, uh, under the old covenant. But only Jesus, could make that declaration, right? Jesus' work was final. In verse 26, we read, for then he would have, to ha- ha- would have had to, offer to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Jesus' work was final, wasn't it? Had it not been final, Jesus would have had to die every single year for our sins. It would have been something that would never have ended. It would have been like the Old Testament animal sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. But Jesus' work is never going to be repeated because it was finished. It was final. It was complete. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus' sacrifice put away sin. In uh, In Hebrews 9, 26, the latter part we read, "...He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages." to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a powerful verse here. It clearly communicates what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to soften the idea of sin, did he? He didn't come to undervalue the idea of sin. He didn't come to redefine sin. Sin is serious. It was so serious that it cost Jesus his life. He came to provide a way for our sins to be forgiven and a way for us to be reconciled with God. We live in a world that is getting more and more lawless, don't we? And they are getting more and more tolerant toward those things that God clearly calls sinful. As a society, think about some of the things that we have done in modern days. We have redefined marriage. We have made homosexuality normal. In some states, abortion is, 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 is horrendous at any time. But in some states, a baby can be delivered and then aborted afterwards. Gender is not necessarily assigned at birth anymore. Now it is even offensive if you refer to a person's pronouns the wrong way. Folks, the Lord never condones sin. And he never changes his mind about sin. A sin that was a sin when humanity first began is still a sin today, isn't it? Jesus came to put away sin, not become tolerant towards it. The Greek word for put away here means um, it is used in a technical, juristic sense, meaning to annul or cancel. That is what Jesus did. He annulled our sins. He provided a way for our sins to be forgiven once and for all. The big ones, the little ones, the accidental ones, even the ones that we don't even remember committing. Jesus provided a way for every single one of our sins to be forgiven. The psalmist tells us that he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he put them away. He remembers them no more. Isn't that good news for all of us in this room? You know, some of you in this room probably have lived a little bit better life than I have. I'm grateful that the Lord has put away my sin and remembers them no more. Notice next, Jesus's sacrifice settles the matter of death and judgment. In verse 27, we read, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There are several things that we can draw from this passage of Scripture. This is one of, um, one of my most quoted verses um, that I quote. But several things, again, that we can pull from this passage. First of all, death is inevitable. We've all heard that, that death and taxes are inevitable, Right? I mean, they're just going to come a day when every single one of us in this room are going to take our final breath, unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns first. In fact, we read here that it is appointed for man to die. Think about um, your day. How many of you like appointments? Anybody in here like appointments? No one likes appointments, right? But 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 all of us have appointments. We've got um, work appointments, we've got school appointments, we've got doctor's appointments, we've got dentist appointments, appointment, 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 appointment. Um, and, and, and I know that some of you in this room, like Chris, we talk um, often um, that, that he goes from one Zoom call to the next Zoom call to the next Zoom call to the next Zoom call. It's just a never-ending um, cycle of appointments that he has on a particular day, how many of you, um, if you were to pull out your calendar today, how many of you would have appointments that would be in there of some sort? All of us would, right? How many of you have in your calendar your appointed day of death? None of us, right? Kind of be morbid if you had that. But the reality is that there is an appointed time for us to die. In fact, the psalmist said in 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them you know we do not have it the day of our death circled in our calendar but we know that day awaits us right unless the lord jesus christ returns and we should be ready for that day We should anticipate that day because it's going to be a glorious day that we get to enter into the very presence of God the Father. Notice next we see here that death is singular. It is appointed for man. It doesn't say to die twice or three times or four times or five times or six times or seven times. It says once right there, right? If there is anyone in this room that believes reincarnation is in your cards, then I want you to know you can put that fairy tale belief um, to bed right now. There is but one life, and there is but one death. Have you, how you live this life and what you believe in in this life and who you believe in will determine your eternity. You know, I don't understand the appeal of reincarnation, but we know there's a lot of religions in this world that believe in reincarnation. More and more people within um, our society are starting to believe in reincarnation as well. You know, I'm grateful that the Lord has allowed me to live at this particular time in human history. I'm grateful that he has saved me and appointed me to preach the good word, good news of salvation, just like he has appointed every single one of us in this room. I'm grateful um, for my life. I'm grateful for my wife. Tomorrow we celebrate 24 years of marriage. Pretty hard to believe that anybody put up with me for 24 years. But um, I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for my family and my faith family and my friends. I'm grateful for this life. There are some things that I would absolutely do over again. But there are many things in this life that I would not want to do over again. And there are things that await me in the future that I am not looking forward to. Why would anyone want to do this again? Here's the deal. They can hope that will happen. But there's a 100% guarantee that they will not get to do this life over again again. There is one guarantee, and that is after death comes judgment. There's coming a day when every single person, past, present, and future, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for their lives. You know, I love what um, an illustration that Billy Graham used to share whenever he um, led his crusades. But he shared an illustration. um goes like this. When Warren Candler was a young man practicing law, he defended a man accused of murder. The young lawyer went all out in his effort to to, um, clear his client of the charge of murder. There were some extenuating circumstances, and Candler made the plea um, before the judge and the jury. Um, He Also, the aged father and mother of the defendant were in the court, and the young lawyer moved on the sympathies and emotions of the jury by frequent references to his God-fearing parents. In due course, the jury reached a verdict, not guilty. The young lawyer turned to Mr. Candler, um, and he had a serious talk with his clear client. This lawyer was a Christian, and he warned him to steer clear of evil ways and to trust God and to trust the power of God to keep him going in life and to keep him straight. Years passed. Again, the man was brought into court. Again, the charges murder. Candler, the lawyer, at his first... um, trial was now his judge. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury rendered their verdict guilty. Ordering the condemned man to stand for sentencing, Judge Candler said, at your first trial, I was your lawyer. Today, I am your judge. The verdict of the jury makes it mandatory for me to sentence you to death. Today, Christ is our lawyer, pleading on our behalf. He is our Savior, willing to forgive and cleanse and forget. However, there is coming a fearful day that he will become our judge. If you were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ this morning, would you be judged for your sins? Would the Lord pull out a a scroll and, and read every sin that you have ever committed? Or would the Lord look at you and say, You have been washed in the blood, your sins have been forgiven well done. For the unbeliever, the day of judgment will be just that, a day they are judged for their sins and subsequently sentenced to eternal death. For the believer, we will stand before God and not be judged for our sins because there are no record of our sins, is there? We will be rewarded for our faithfulness and our work as believers. Folks, once a person dies, it is too late for them to choose faith, over damnation. For those that we know that do not know Jesus, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus this morning, heed the words of 1 Corinthians 6.2. Now is the day of salvation. Make today the day of your salvation. Notice next, Jesus' sacrifice settles the matter of salvation. In verse 28, we read, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Imagine the picture here. Imagine a Jew who who stood outside waiting in anticipation of the high priest coming out of, of the tabernacle. And whenever he comes out of the tabernacle, he says, it is finished. Their sins had been atoned for. And immediately the crowd probably burst into cheering because they knew at that moment their sins had been forgiven and that God had no record of their sins in that moment. The people would have eagerly awaited for the high priest to reemerge from that tent. Do you eagerly await the return Of the Lord. I love what Stephen Cole shares. He says Christ's second coming will not be with reference to sin, since that issue was completely resolved at his first coming. Rather, he will appear for salvation for those who eagerly await him. There are three tenses to our salvation. We were saved in the past at the moment that we trusted Christ Jesus. Presently, we are being saved as God works his holiness in our lives every day. And in the future, when Christ comes, we shall be saved completely. And finally, in First John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Within the pages of the Old Testament, there was a promise that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and burst into human history and provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. There is another promise in Scripture as well, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return again. In fact, Jesus, after Jesus ascended um, in, in Acts chapter 1, after he, he commissioned his disciples and told them that they were going to be his witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the other parts of the world, as he ascended... The, the the men and women looked up into the sky with great anticipation. And we're told in Scripture that two men dressed in white appeared. And and, and and we read these words in Acts chapter 1, verse verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Are you ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I am. Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? I have. Have you experienced victory in Jesus? I hope we all have. You know, victory in Jesus is one of my favorite hymns, and it's probably one of yours as well. This hymn was written by a gentleman by the name of Eugene M. Bartlett Sr. And he was the writer of this hymn. <clears throat> he was born in 1885 in Missouri. He would become a singer, a music produ- publisher, a producer, and a songwriter. And, and his claim to fame was in hymn publishing. He was a poster child of the American dream. He had a wife and two kids. He was a successful and accomplished man. However, in 1939, at the age of 53, his world changed drastically. Mr. Bartlett suffered a paralyzing stroke that left him unable to walk and even speak, and for the most part, he would be bedridden for the rest of his life. Many felt that stroke ended his teaching ministry. Yet it was during these dark days that Eugene would pen the great hymn, "'Victory in Jesus.'" While looking back over his life, he began to think about, um, think back to the night that he was born again and the rich life that he had since lived. He picked up a pen and he began to write the following words. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Realizing that the love of God had sustained him and brought him to where he was that day, He is quoted as saying he felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to add the second stanza where he wrote, I heard about his healing, of his saving power revealing, how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. When he completed the song, he looked back over it and he seen it was a story of the redeeming power of Christ in and through his life. He wanted the song to be joyous. And while written during the darkest period of his life, he chose to make the melody full of happiness and enthusiasm. This great hymn goes, I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, how he made the lame to walk and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. I heard about a mansion. He has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Don't you long for that day that you get to sing up there the song of a victory. The story goes on to say that, that Mr. Bartlett never had the opportunity, obviously, to ever sing this hymn, but his son would go on to be a worship evangelist. And at the first um, revival that he was a part of, after um, having this song, um, at the time of invitation, um, the pastor gave his appeal and no one came forward. And then um, all of a sudden, his son began to sing the song, Victory in Jesus. And after the conclusion of that song, 50 people came down that aisle and gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there is victory in Jesus, isn't there? There is forgiveness available to all. Eternity awaits. There is a day of judgment coming, and there is salvation available this morning. Come to Jesus and experience his victory. For us in this room, hopefully all of us have experienced victory in Jesus. But we all know someone outside the doors of this church, though, that do not know Jesus. They've never experienced the victory of Jesus. So let's go to them with the good news of salvation. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer and then we'll have a time of invitation. But let's let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus, just thanking you again for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you again for the opportunity to study your great word. Thank you, Father, for knowing, Lord Jesus, that we can have victory over death. That victory was secured for all of us in this room at the moment. That Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us, went to the cross, or went to the grave, and then rose three days later. All of us in this room can experience victory. And the good news, Father, is those outside the doors of this church that all of us know. Many of us know people that do not have a relationship with you, and we know that they can experience victory today. Help us to go to them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.